0: If you would uh, go ahead and stand with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through uh, the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning the Lord laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are there not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit the salvation? You may be seated. I
1: want to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin uh, looking and picking up where we left off last week in the book of Hebrews, chapter one. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken. A God that is speaking, a God that will continue to speak. Father, you are the great initiator. You've called us to be responders to your word. And Father, we open the pages of this book of Hebrews and we see that you have been at work in times past. And here, even in recent times, as the writer is putting forth in these last days, these last days of which we here in 2016 are still very much a part of, these last days. The Son has spoken. And Father, I pray that we would sit up and be attentive to what you have to say through your Son... That when you speak, Lord, we would be quick to hear. We would be quick to then do and obey what you say. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning from your word. As you are laying forth proofs, evidence. As to why your son is better than in this case here in chapters 1 and 2, better than the angels. Father, I pray that we would be attentive to hear. Father, we would be asking of you what you would desire to teach us through this word. This is your word. It's a profitable word. All of it is. So may we listen with that in mind. How might this word today be profitable for my soul? Lord, we look forward to how you'll answer that question for us today. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our mediator. Amen. As as many of you consider, I know several of you here have have attended in times past, uh, conferences of various sorts. You've listened to messages online. Uh, Technology now allows... Opportunities to hear a message online now. You don't have to go to a a building necessarily to hear someone, but uh, messages are readily available. And one of the questions that I think oftentimes we're asking as we're contemplating conference or message to listen to is who's speaking? Who's speaking? We want to know who who the speaker is. You want to know if you're going to a conference, that that phrase, you're familiar with that phrase, The keynote. Well, that means something to most of us. A keynote speaker means that those those are the ones who are going to be the primary speakers. Those are the folks who are going to speak to the whole of the audience as they come. There might be other workshop speakers. But the keynote speakers are the ones who have come to address the entire group. And oftentimes... People are making their decisions to attend and go to a conference based upon who's speaking. Who is being charged with communicating the message? Who's being entrusted to stand and speak? You see, I believe that the voice matters when it comes. It does matter, right or wrong, it does matter as to whether there are going to be people in the seats or not. Well, the Hebrew writer, he begins this book and his initial words identify, listen, his his initial words identify a God who speaks. He spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets and he's spoken in these last days, verse 2 says, by his son. You read the Gospels, and you see that the crowds literally flocked to hear Jesus speak. Remember that? The the Bible says that that the listeners were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. They marveled at his teaching. Why? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they were amazed because he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. He taught as one having authority. What authority did this Jesus have, friends? The Hebrew writer begins the book by telling us seven things about Jesus, the Son of God. And we talked about this last week. These seven things are helpful for us to understand where his authority comes from. So just zipping through the seven in bullet fashion. Covered this last week. God appointed this son heir over all things. Heir. This son was the one through whom the worlds were made. Creator. This sun is deemed the brightness or the radiance of God's glory. This sun is the express image, the exact representation of God. We talked about how God is spirit. He's invisible and he sent Jesus, his son, to be the exact representation. So if people wanted to know who God was, all they had to do was check out Jesus. Jesus was, John 1.18, declaring God. That's what Jesus did. This Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, is the sustainer, the carrier. Remember we talked about the one who carries all things. And the idea there of him being a sustainer, it has an ongoing connotation. He keeps on sustaining. He keeps on carrying All things. How? By what means? By the word of his power. By the word of his power. That's what the text says. This son, number six, by himself purged our sins. He cleansed us. And we talked last week about what that's referencing. That's referencing the cross. At the cross. And number seven, We see that this son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Speaking to this son who not only died on the cross, who not only was buried, who not only three days later was raised. That's the gospel in short, isn't it? He was also, after he was raised from the dead, he was also ascended back to the father. He was exalted That's the Philippians 2. Michael read some of that this morning. The Philippians 2 idea, verses 9 through 11. That God highly exalted him. So we have these seven things that are in the text, in those two verses, about Jesus. Now what's interesting in these seven things, we're going to have, in just a moment, the scripture in verses 5 through 13 are going to provide for us seven Old Testament quotations... References about this son, about this Jesus. And you know, when you look at verses 2 and 3 and you see that list of seven that I just read. Is it any wonder that people were amazed at hearing this man speak? Is it any wonder that people flocked to hear what he had to say? God in the flesh, heir of all things, the creator of the world, the savior who cleansed. As we know, there were some who didn't believe he was any of those seven we just read. Some believed him to be but a man. Some, the Bible says, stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who was the stumbling stone? It was Christ. They stumbled. They missed him. Well, picking up with the exalted Christ at the end of verse 3, you enter into verse 4. The sentence continues, notice. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. One writer says that Hebrews... Shows that Christ's supremacy has been confirmed in his exaltation. Right? And it makes sense. We go from verse 3 to verse 4. When when verse 3 says that he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and then verse 4 goes, having become so much better than the angels. There's a connector. I want you to see there's a connector between three and four. They're not disjointed, they're connected. And actually we're going to see that 4 is going to be connected with 5 through 13 as well. The exaltation of Christ seems to be the the peak or the tip, if you will... ...of how it is so that that this son could be deemed so much better than the angels. And so what we have in 5 through 13 is really a biblical explanation... ...of the Son who is deemed better than the angels. Now, before we proceed in the text... ...I'd like to confront a perception that very well may be present here in this place. A perception that might be right here in your minds as you open and read this text. For many of you, I would venture to say that there's little need to wade through the seven Old Testament texts in order to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. If I was to ask you this morning and say, is Jesus better than the angels? I don't think you would need me to run through a list of Old Testament quotations before you would say, yeah, I I believe he's better than the angels. I, I really believe many of us here would say, yes, I believe he is better. I don't need all these seven quotations. I already receive and know that he's better. understand that the writer of Hebrews is addressing real concerns, real threats for his listener in the first century. Okay? And while you might not have an issue with raising angels above the exalted Christ, the primary audience of this letter was being challenged at some level, was being challenged in this regard. The angels were divine representatives, messengers, and people listened to them. These angels arrested the attention of people when they showed up on the scene. Notice that these angelic visitors, they show up when God sends them. They're not conjured up, but sent forth to minister, to speak a word of God to men. And to the Jews, angels were significant in that they were somehow involved at some level, not quite clear on how exactly, but the Bible does tell us they were involved in the giving of the law. Now, here's one thing we know about the Jewish people. There was a big three. If I was to put a big three, the big three would be the law, the temple, and Moses. If I was to come up with a big three for the Jews, that would be the big three. The law, the temple, and Moses. And the angels actually have a part to play in the bringing of the law. I'm not making that up. The Bible actually tells us. In fact, when Stephen's giving his speech in Acts chapter 7, at the end of it, when he starts to rebuke those who were stiff-necked, shortly after, he is stoned, martyred. In Acts 7 verse 53, he's talking about these Jewish folks he's he's addressing. You who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it, Galatians, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, he's asking the question about the purpose of the law. What purpose does the law serve? He says it was added because of transgressions. I think many of us know that part of the verse. But if we keep reading, here's what we get to. It was added because of transgressions till the seed, capital S, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. You see, while we don't know all the ins and outs and details of how that was manifested, how the angels were actually involved in the manifestation of the law and how it came to be, the angels played a part in that. Angels are held in high regard as conduits of the very law that these Jews stood upon. Kent Hughes in his commentary, he writes, he says, some of the Jewish believers to whom he was writing were in danger of compromising Jesus' superiority and lapsing into Judaism. They were under pressure first from the imminent threat of Nero's persecution. Remember we talked timeline last week about 64 AD, right on the, the beginning curve of that persecution. And secondly, he says they were under pressure because of ostracism by their Jewish countrymen in the synagogue. Listen to what he says. He says, they were being tempted to compromise. They were were in a context of being tempted to compromise. Still holding to some truths about Jesus. But Let's just make him a man. You know, we think about that and we, we, we can translate that over into our day. And so you're sitting here today and, and maybe you know in your heart of hearts that, that Jesus is already better than the angels. That's not a stumbling block for you as you sit in your chair today. But let me ask the question. If it's not angels... What might be serving to compromise Jesus' superiority in your own life? You see, I think we got to go beyond the first century because I'm convinced as I'm reading and studying the text this week that the majority of those who are going to be listening don't have an issue with angels being better than Jesus. Perhaps some do out there. I would say by and large many of us here don't. So then what? How then does this text become relevant to you today to help you walk, to help you live as Christ would have you live today? I believe asking this question. Okay, let's say it's not angels. But is there something else serving to compromise Jesus' superiority in your life In this 21st century of gadgets and fast cars and luxuries off the charts. What's the stumbling block? What are the stumbling blocks in your path? What's keeping you from living a life that reflects Jesus as superior to all? Hughes goes on and he describes what he calls this this daily tension. This daily tension that comes with holding to the superiority of Jesus in all things. I mean, think about it. If Jesus is superior and you believe that with all of your heart, how does that get expressed in how you live? How does it get expressed? The daily tension may come at your workplace where you are more concerned about the company policies than being a witness Christ has called you to be. The daily tension may come inside your own home where the busyness of schedules, the agendas crowd out the solitude and the stillness and the quietness of hearing God's voice. For a people who bear the name Christian, it's hard to tell sometimes whether Jesus is superior or not. There are lots of other substitutes that seem to take the place of Jesus these days. Did you know that one of the first things that's written right there in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Perhaps it would be helpful for each of you to define the daily tension in your own life as it pertains to the superiority of Jesus. If Jesus is superior to all things, then why don't our lives reflect this more often? If Jesus is superior, then why do we fail so often to have any regular time of fellowship with the Lord in prayer? If Jesus is superior then why do we treat the relationship with him so casually? If Jesus is superior, then why aren't we taking the time to invest all that we can in the spiritual growth and development of the next generation? If Jesus is superior, then why does the church spend so much of her time sending mixed messages to a world that's desperate to know the Jesus of the Scriptures and what he has to offer to the hurting and to the hopeless? so it's because of the exaltation of jesus verse 3 that he's deemed so much better verse 4 than the angels as he has by inheritance by inheritance remember that the son is deemed heir of all things right an heir inherits right by inheritance he's obtained a more excellent name this name is exalted by the father And every knee we see in Philippians 2 is going to bow to this name. Not going to be bowing to the name of the angels. So having stated that the son is so much better than the angels. I'd like to take you on for just a moment along a a tour, a scripture tour. Which is going to serve as evidence or proof that the son is in fact better than than the angels you know I was thinking about proofs and I was thinking about these proofs and uh, how many of geometry people are out here any geometry folks good couple of you yeah yeah couple of he actually smiled when he raised his hand he actually likes it <clears throat> um, there are these things called proofs and, and these proofs are things that are always true right So if you know this to be true, and you know this to be true, you can start solving for all these odd, strange shapes. Proofs. And those proofs come in handy. When you know the proofs, the problems aren't as difficult. When you know certain things to be true, it can help solve the problem. Amen? When you know certain things to be true, it's the same with the scriptures. When you know the Word of God to be true, it becomes your go to source when life confronts you with challenges and roadblocks. What follows in chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, are seven Old Testament proofs. Let's just call them that. Seven Old Testament proofs that show how the Son is better than the angels. And notice he doesn't just make a statement of fact, but he goes on to prove how it is so. From the scriptures. There's two side notes here I think are important. First of all, the writer proves his point using the very scriptures that the Jews would have been familiar with. The Jewish audience that he's speaking to. By the way, he's speaking to a couple different audiences throughout this book. These Jews who would be deemed Jewish Christians who have come out of Judaism, they're now Christians. There are some who know much of the truth that the writer is is speaking, but they have yet to walk that way. They have yet to to go in that direction. And then there are those who just flat out haven't received it. Have been stiff-necked toward the message. So there there are a couple different places where his audience, as he's writing... All right, And we'll see as we go through the, the, the book, that becomes important for us to realize and to know. But the Jewish people were given the oracles of God, Romans chapter 3 says. And right here the oracles. The, the word is held up as the evidence for why this son is so much better than the angels. But I think a second side note is important for us today. And that is that when controversies come forward. And, and how, many, how many of you know controversies come forward quite often today? Have you heard of controversy this week? There's always a controversy you hear. It's, it's sometimes daily. Depends on how, how glued in you are to, to news. Because there are certain people who think that certain things really deem to be news. It's not really news. But controversies abound, don't they? Controversies. And so when controversies come forward, it's always best to turn to the word of God for your answers. What does the word say? Are you quick to turn to God's word for your answers? Or are you seeking answers elsewhere? Are your proofs coming from the source of truth? Do your best answers spring forth because it is written? Are you reminded often of thus saith the Lord? Right? So, those of you who have a Bible, hold it up just in front of you here for a moment. Okay? Got your Bibles with you? We all got Bible. This is, this is the interactive part right here. Okay? So you've got your Bible. We've got, a, we've got a nice showing of Bibles here today. That's good to see. Okay. We're going to use them. So I'm going to encourage you to stay engaged. We're going to be flipping pages okay. as we go to some of these quotes. We're going to be flipping some pages. I'd like you to join me as we go to some of these scriptures. We're going to, together, we're going to investigate the evidence that's submitted by the writer of Hebrews. And together we're going to confirm that Jesus is truly better than the angels. And here's the reason, because God's word says so. Fair enough? So let's do that. So first, there's five things we're going to run through here as we go through these seven scriptures, they're gonna give us five things for us to consider and to jot down to make sure we have some anchors about who this Jesus is. He's better because, right? And we're gonna give you five of them. He's better because. Jesus is better than the angels because number one, Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's son. That's the first reason. He's better than God's son. How do we know that to be true? Verse five. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Notice that the last Quote 2 in verse 13 is prefaced in a similar fashion... ...but to which of the angels has he ever said? Get the introductory remark. The introductory remark or introductory question... ...is phrased in such a way... ...that would lead us to believe... ...that what he's about to share... ...isn't for the angels. This is not something he said to the angels. We can pick up on that. Cues in the text. Okay? Jesus is God's son. For to which of the angels did he ever say... ...you are my son... Today I have begotten you. Now, that comes from Psalm chapter 2. Many of these references actually come from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 is is deemed a messianic psalm in many ways. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's talking about his uh, ruling with an iron scepter. At the end of the psalm, he's talking about how important it is to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish when his wrath is kindled but a little. You see, that's all it takes for God. Just a little bit of wrath. That's how powerful he is. Making reference to the son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God speaking, declaring. We're probably also reminded of the passage in when Jesus is being baptized and the heavens open and the word from God speaking about his son whom he loves. We see the second part of verse five, the second quote, which falls under the same umbrella of Jesus as God, son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This takes us back, if you'll turn uh, with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. ...another wonderful passage of scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7... ...begin reading at the end of 11. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now this is context. Nathan is speaking to David... ...as a result of what God spoke to Nathan. Nathan, remembers a prophet, right? And Nathan is going to God... ...excuse me, going to David... ...on behalf of God to tell David that... ...the house of God that David thought about building... ...is going to not be built by David... ...but the house is going to be built by his son, Solomon. Okay, that's the context. And so he says, the Lord tells you... ...he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled... ...and you rest with your fathers... ...I will set up your seed after you... ...who will come from your body... ...and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name... And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will be his father. God's going to be his father. Whose father? David's son. That would be Solomon. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I would chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established, how long? Forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So we see here in Psalm 2, and we see that in 2 Samuel 7. The writer here is using this when he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He's taking that reference that from 2 Samuel was talking about God being a father to Solomon. He's referencing that as being good for the son. Because you see, the promise continues, doesn't it? And he's pointing us, prophesying, he's pointing us to the time because that kingdom is lasting forever. That Davidic line, the promise through David... Right Goes all the way to that seed, the one whom the promise is fulfilled, Christ. So he's writing, essentially pointing back to, to David and Solomon, but also saying here and now, this is how Jesus is better. He's God's son. I will be to him, to the son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So Jesus is God's Son. And it's also important as we look at the text here to understand that, that angels, they're reference in the scripture. Uh, they're referenced as, in verse 14 as spirits, ministering spirits. Uh, they're referenced in Psalm 89 as holy ones. They're even referenced in Job chapter 1 verse 6 and Job chapter 2 verse 1 as the sons of God. Sons of God. Now let's be real clear. Sons of God are different than the Son of God. None of the angels are ever deemed the Son of God. All right? But some references, they're watchers. They're called watchers in Daniel. They, they had the reference of thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities in Colossians 1.16. In Ephesians chapter 21, they they're deemed powers. Angels are deemed many things in the scriptures, but they are not given the name Son. Only Jesus is designated as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Jesus is better than the angels because he alone is given the name Son. And as Son, he has been given the title heir. He, he has an inheritance as the Son of God. What else, according to the text, is deemed better about this Son? Not only is he God's son, but this Jesus is the one to worship and serve. That's verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. This Jesus is the one to worship and serve. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, some, uh, there's lots of, of lengthy uh, discussion uh, that we could go into here on what verse 6 is really getting at with the word Again. When he again brings the firstborn. Remember we talked about firstborn last week just briefly. Firstborn, we we identify Jesus not as the first created being. Which some hold to today. He's not a created being. Firstborn a lot of times is is reference to um, rank or priority. Okay? So he is, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. The word world there is not our regular cosmos. But it is... Uh, which has in mind an inhabited world. An inhabited world. Some tend to think that that he's speaking here of of the time when Christ himself was exalted, the exalted Christ when he inhabited and he went back and he talked about in the Gospels about how he came from the Father. He was here for a time and he's returning to the Father. And and we see here in verse 6, he says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God Worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, right here the writer is referencing what we know as the, uh, the Greek Septuagint. Not the Hebrew scriptures themselves. So if you go and you actually look at Deuteronomy 32. If you turn to Deuteronomy 32. Some of your Bibles will actually have a footnote here. That might give you some help. In Deuteronomy 32. At the end of De- Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. This is the end of the Song of Moses. What we know as the Song of Moses. Moses. It says in the, in, the, in the scriptures here in the New King James, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. There's a footnote there, which says that there's a Dead Sea Scroll fragment. The Septuagint also picks up on this and says, And let all the gods, or let all the angels, worship him. And it has a little footnote that says, Compare Septuagint and Hebrews 1, verse 6. Which, by the way, that's where we're at. Hebrews 1, verse 6. A little bit of more detail there, but I need to say that just to help you understand where it's coming from because it's not coming verbatim from Deuteronomy 32, 43 as you might flip to your Bible. The writer is actually referencing the wording found in the Septuagint. And somebody might go, well, well, I'm lost here. What's that all about? I'm not going to go into the details on all of that and when that was written. All I will say is this. God used this writer, to write these words in the book of Hebrews. And this particular writer is referencing in part here as he's going through some of these scriptures, the Greek Septuagint version as opposed to the Hebrew version. And I want to say this, just to make it simple and clear. It's God's word, and he used that here. It's profitable. All of his word is profitable. It's not less of God's word because this writer used a different version Okay, Can we just be clear on that? I want to put that forward. I also want to give you some understanding and handle of where it's coming from. Because you might be reading and go, I don't see where it says that. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And let all the gods, reference to the angels, worship him. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. We see also that this uh, passage here in, in Hebrews 1, 6... is is referencing uh, Psalm 97, where it says, let all be put to shame who who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And there a reference again to the angels. Worship him. We're to worship the son. We see the continuance here in verse seven. Not only are we to worship him, but we're to serve him. Psalm 104 verses 3 and 4 says that he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. Who makes the clouds his chariots. Who walks on the wings of the wind. Listen, the psalmist here is is putting together a list of all these things that the Lord does. Here's what he does. Here's what he has charge over. And we know he has charge over all things. But he's given a list. And in the midst of the list, we get to this. Who makes his angels spirits. His ministers flames of fire. You see, these angels that we're speaking of, they are his servants. They are sent out at his bidding to accomplish and do his word. Okay? Angels is God's ministers. Psalm 103, verse 20 might be a helpful verse. It says, "Bless bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. That's what they do. Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps. I love this picture. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You might remember the Old Testament story in 2 Kings, chapter 6, where Elisha, remember, and his servant, and they're surrounded, and the servant's worried, oh, and Elisha prays. And remember, he looks at me. he says, Lord, allow him to be able to see. And all around he sees chariots. Fire and horses. Who are those folks? Angels. It's an angelic army. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says, For he shall give, God shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This was the scripture, by the way, that was twisted by the devil in his conversation with Jesus. Remember that? The devil twisted that one. For his own purposes and means. John is reminded on two different occasions that this Jesus is the one to be worshipped and served. Turn in your Bible to Revelation. I want to show this to you. This is very important. We think about Jesus. Why is he better than the angels? He's he's not only God's son, but he is the one alone who is to be worshipped and served. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. He's just heard something from the angel. Verse 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, listen to what he says. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. This is the angel. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Flip your page one more to Revelation 22. And look at verses 8 and 9. This is after Jesus has spoken. The angel has shown up. angel has shown John all of these things, these wonderful things of heaven, this heavenly city. Verse 8, Revelation 22. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of whom? The angel who showed me these things. Did he do the right thing? Is it okay? Is it good to do this? What's the Bible say? Then the angel said to me, See that you do not do that for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Friends, do you know that there are people today who are buying the lie of worshiping angels? They're buying the lie. They're buying these images and they've got, you might have heard stories. They've got images of these angels all over their house. They're worshiping these angels. We read the text and we want to know, we want to see, we want proof as to how Jesus, the son, is better than the angels. I believe the scripture is very clear. Don't worship the angels. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's a theme of Deuteronomy, isn't it? You shall make no carved images. And there's a caution here. Grudem in his, uh, his commentary on doctrine of the scriptures. He, he, he puts forward here for us, I think, two helpful cautions about angels. First being that when angels are promoting something other than the gospel. What are you talking about? Well, turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul, right out of the gate, jumps to the issue. Some were help, some, there were some turning them away from the gospel. Turning them away to another gospel, which was really no gospel at all, Paul says. Okay? Verse 7 says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 2 Corinthians, couple that with what we see in 2 Corinthians about a caution, about a, just a big picture understanding and a handle on these angels. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel of light. So hold that thought. Read the next verse. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, Satan's, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And all I would say as a follow-up to that, friends, is do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is deemed better than the angels because he's God's son and because he's the only one worthy of worship. He's the one we're to serve. How else according to Hebrews is Jesus better? Number 3. Jesus is the righteous ruler over all things. He's the righteous ruler over all things. He's God's son. He's the one who alone is worthy to be worshiped and served. And he is the righteous ruler over all things. That's verses 8 and 9 in Hebrews 1. But to the son, he says, right? Verse 7, he spoke to the angels, right? And the angels, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, now there's a contrast here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. We see here this comes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. A wedding psalm. Bride and groom imagery here. We see that this picture here has some key words that I'd just like to point out, some key words in those two verses of Psalm 45, which is found in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Throne, scepter, righteousness, kingdom, anointed, and gladness or joy reminds us of the passage in Hebrews later, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Jesus is better than the angels because he is the one whose throne is eternal. He is infinite. His kingdom is an everlasting, unshakable kingdom, we'll see in Hebrews 12. He rules with an iron scepter and he rules with righteousness. And because he's holy, his ruling with righteousness... Demands that he hates lawlessness. Well, see, holiness can't have both and hug both and embrace both. The God we serve, this Son that we're talking about, is holy. And he rules and reigns with righteousness. This Jesus is the anointed one. That idea, the concept of the anointed one, speaks to the Christ, speaks to the Messiah. And he's preparing to return one day for his bride, the church. We keep going in the text. Why else is Jesus deemed better than the angels? He's the son of God, right? He's the one who alone is worthy to be worshipped and served. He's the righteous ruler over all things. Number four, Jesus is unchanging. We see this in verses 10, 11, and 12. Verses 10, 11, and 12, which, by the way, we can reference in Psalm 102. The end of Psalm 102, verses 25, 26, and 27. Okay, that's where this is found. He says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no End. Again, it reminds us of a reference point later in Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, where it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and when? Forever. He's the same. A cloak and a garment are used here in this psalm. You think about a cloak and a garment, something that you've had or worn for years. When you wear something over time, what's it do? You know, I used to have a sweatshirt, and it got, it got to wear... I mean, I could see the seam breaking around the neck of. But it was so—you know—it was one of those comfortable sweatshirts you just liked wearing it. He's it hated getting rid of it. But what we notice is that the more we wear something, it starts to what? Starts to fade, starts to tear. Doesn't fit us maybe any longer. That's the contrast that's put forward: a cloak and a garment. And, you know, I was thinking about these earthen tents that the Lord's given to us. They grow old as well, don't they? They are daily wearing away. How many of you know and experience the, the evidence of these, daily, these bodies daily wearing away? Anybody? Yeah. They're, they're wasting away. We have these mortal bodies. They break down over time and we all feel the effects of aging. And there are a lot of folks today who want to submit and put forth medicines and solutions to being young. It's the, it's the, the idea of, of pursuing being young again. Advertisements are plenty, but the human body is bent. It's going, it's heading toward, back toward the dust. From dust we came to dust we're returning. That's the direction. And yet this Jesus, with all of these things changing, this Jesus is deemed better than the angels because he never changes. leads us to believe that some of the angels perhaps changed. Well, if we read our Bibles, we see that some of the angels in fact did change. Some of them got kicked out. Some of them did change. Some of them wanted to be the top ruler, the top one. And he along with several others got booted out. This Jesus we're talking about never changes. This Jesus is the one who was faithful back then. He's faithful even yet today. We could give testimony of his times when he's been faithful and his faithfulness is going to continue. We sing about great is thy faithfulness. That's who he is. We serve an eternal, infinite God and the express image of that God is in the Son. Well, there's one last proof here. That's not a small one. Why else is Jesus deemed better than the angels? Number five, Jesus is victorious and authoritative. He's victorious and authoritative. This comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, which by the way, Psalm 110 is referenced more than any other Old Testament scripture. In the New Testament. The New Testament cites Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage. It leads us to believe it's pretty important. Pretty significant. The Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus used this in his own teaching. <laughs> uh, kind of set those that were listening, uh, they had no idea what Jesus was, ta- was getting at. They didn't know where he was going, they didn't give him an answer. The Lord said to my Lord, David's writing Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. Remember we read in verse 3 that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This psalm here in Psalm 110 is making reference to some of that same idea. Sitting at his right hand. The son sitting at the father's right hand. By the way, the the, the father doesn't have a right hand. Can, Can we put that forward for clarity? God doesn't have a body like man. God is spirit. The idea in reference to sitting at his right hand. His right hand is the place of honor. His right hand is the place of power. His right hand is the place of priority. In that regard, he's seated at his right hand. We sing the song, Victory in Jesus... My savior forever. This Jesus is victorious. He's authoritative. Then we get to 114. Which ends what we know as chapter 1. Obviously the the chapters and verses weren't there in the original. Right? But it ends for us today as we're looking at chapter 1. It ends what we know as chapter 1. What we're going to see. This is pretty interesting to look at and to know. From chapter 1 all the way really to the end of chapter 2, verse 18. He's going to continue this discussion. He's not done talking about the angels here. But it's broken down into scopes or segments. Next week, we're going to get to the first four verses of chapter 2. And then we're going to get to verses 5 through 9. And then we're going to, then we're going to touch on 10 through 18. Because the message they're communicating, he keeps adding Details for us. Details that are good for us to take in one Sunday at a time. 1.14 says, are they not... He's talking about the angels. Remember the question in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said? He's not said that to the angels. He's only said that to his son. Sit at my right hand. Verse 14, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits? ministering, serving spirits sent forth to minister or serve. So they're ministering spirits sent forth to serve or minister in what way? What capacity? For those who will inherit salvation. Now, I I believe there's a word here in closing for the listener, not just for his first century listener, but for you today. His angels... Have a place and serve a purpose and have a function. They're ministering spirits, servants of the Most High God, missionaries of sorts, sent out by God to serve on behalf of those who will inherit, that's the future, those who will inherit salvation. Now this is good news. This is good news for us here. Okay. The angels are at God's disposal and they are working for our good as God deems fit. Now whether it is true as some would like to hold to and some perhaps press further than they should of whether God has an angel for every Little one, Jesus references that, the Gospels, the angels watching over and providing care. One thing's for sure we do know about angels. They provide protection, Psalm ninety-one, eleven. They provide guidance, Psalm 19, verse 17, or excuse me, Genesis 19, verse 17. I'm gonna give you the references and you can look them up. These angels provide encouragement. Gideon, story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 12. Angels provide deliverance. We see in Acts 12, verse 7. Right? They helped in the, uh, Peter being brought out of prison. We see angels serve as enlightenment. Matthew chapter 2, 19 and 20, when the the angel showed up to Joseph and said, Hey, now it's safe for you to go. It's safe for you now to travel. Herod's dead. He's no longer. Gave him information. The angel did. The angel in Luke 22, verse 43, empowers, gives him empowerment. Remember Jesus when he's in the garden? Who came and ministered to Jesus? The angels did. Numbers 22, verse 32, an incredible story and account there of Balaam, Balak. The angels also serve the purpose of rebuke. And in Acts 12, verse 23, in the story of King Herod, the angel of the Lord shows up to discipline. Discipline. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says that this divine witness to the Son's majesty and authority carry with it the implication that the readers whose privileged position is recognized in verse 14. That's our privileged position. The, the, the angels, according to the scripture, are ministering spirits for those who will inherit salvation. Therefore, we ought to acknowledge his glory, we ought to put our confidence in this Son who is better. Hebrews one, two, and three tells us who this Jesus is, seven things. The Son who speaks. Hebrews one five through thirteen provide the proofs to explain how it is that he's better than the angels, who for his listener served as a potential stumbling block for superiority. Hebrews 1:14 provides hope and encouragement for those who will inherit salvation. See, because the angels serve as a great as great purpose for ministering to the needs of the brethren, but they are not the son of God. They are not to be worshiped and served. They are not the righteous ruler over all. They are not unchanging like the son. They are not ultimately victorious and authoritative as the Son. This victory that we have is found alone in Christ Jesus. And so as we'll see here in the text, these proofs are going to lead to a warning. The first four verses of chapter 2 are going to be a warning. And the warning... It's tied into what we've just talked about. So I want you to connect what we're talking about today. Hold on to it. Simmer on it. Pray about it. And bring those thoughts and ideas with you next week because there's going to be a follow-up warning. We've essentially gotten an explanation, a, um, uh, a biblical explanation, if you will, in the scriptures. And now there's going to be an exhortation that's going to come in the first four verses Just to pique your curiosity, I'll read verse 1. Therefore, therefore, we're connector, right? We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Let us not drift away. Instead, let's hold to who this Jesus is. Let's understand that when he speaks, he's the one that we would desire to listen to, that our heart would be desirous to hear from. This Jesus is better than the angels. And I want to go back and challenge you one last time before we close in prayer. I realize that for many of you, the angels aren't the stumbling block for you as they were perhaps for the first century listener. What's that daily tension though for you? that's there in your life, that's an obstacle for Jesus' superiority. If Jesus is superior in your life, what is it that's blocking that in your life? It may not be angels, but between you and the Lord, perhaps it would be helpful and good for you to spend some time to see, just as David did at the end of Psalm 139. In fact, let's close right there. Psalm 139. Because I think it's appropriate to what we're talking about. Psalm 139 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, you have given to us your word of truth. I pray for each one of us here that this Word would be our go-to source when we have questions. Instead of trying to go elsewhere and talk to different people and get opinions and check out the latest polls, Lord, we would be quick to turn to Your Word. We see, Lord, here in the text today that You have defined for us and shown in Your Word who this Jesus is, who this Son is. You've given us seven pictures of who your son is. These seven anchors. May we, as we go through the book of Hebrews, may we constantly find ourselves going back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, holding fast to the anchors of who this son is. And then, Father, instead of just making a statement of fact in verse 4 that he is so much better than the angels, you've seen fit to provide proofs evidence and you've provided the proofs and the evidence from your word of truth may that be instructive for us in our own lives Father we would look to your word for proof for evidence we would be a Berean and check it out in that regard Father may we rejoice in the last verse that we covered today Knowing that these angels, while they are not better than the Son, the angels are ministering spirits that are sent forth for our benefit. For those who will inherit salvation. So Father, we rejoice that you love us, that you care for us in such a way to provide and protect and guard Minister to us. You, this is just one other way that you care for us. And so, Father, we say thank you. We thank you for your goodness in this. Pray, Father, that we would keep at our heart who you are, who your son Jesus is, and the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit who abides within us, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are a mighty God. I praise you that your son came down here to earth and he ministered to those and he spoke with authority. And so Father, whenever we open this word and whenever we hear you speaking and whenever we see Jesus working and operating in the gospels, may we listen, may we incline our ear to hear what you have to say and walk in that way. And know that as we do so, Lord, you are ministering on our behalf in ways we have no idea behind the scenes. We rejoice in that, Lord. We praise you, Father, for your good word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.